This is a re-recording of the January 23rd sermon on Isaiah 55. Um, having to re-record it due to some technical difficulties. One of my favorite things to hear about are um, land habitat restoration projects. I love to hear about how people approach those and the transformation that occurs on the property. One of my favorites is the story of David Bamberger. Uh, David Bamberger retired from business and uh, purchased over 5,000 acres in the hill country of West Texas. And he specifically told his realtor, he said, find me the, the worst, most irreversibly damaged property. And so he found this 5,000 acre parcel that many people felt was, was irreversibly damaged. That it, was a, it was a hopeless parcel of land. In fact, when he first got there over 50 years ago, he tried to dig seven different wells um, on the property and went down 500 feet and they found no water. The situation was uh, pretty dire in many ways. There was no water on the property. There were uh, fewer than 40 species of birds. The average weight of deer on the property was only about 50 pounds. 50 years later, by getting rid of scrub trees and planting native grasses and doing a few other uh, uh, non-invasive, kind of, kind of uh, really not very substantial things, but it was, it was enough in this restoration process so that now the property is completely transformed. There are, uh, it's described as having countless springs, over 27 different ponds and lakes for livestock and for other animals. There are now uh, over 250 species of birds on the property and the average weight of the deer is over 100 pounds. And even in seasons of extreme droughts, which, which uh, the hill country of West Texas does experience from time to time, these wells and ponds and lakes never run dry. There was a giant aquifer on the property that when he bought it, he, he said it was, a, it was an auditorium. It was completely bone dry. And now it is, it is full. And what we see at what uh, David Bamberger called Sela Farm, that transformation from, from irreversible damage and from a hopeless situation was reversed simply because they got water. And what Bamberger did there with his team over the course of 50 years Isaiah 55, verse 1. God here in Isaiah 55, verse 1, invites us to experience all at one moment. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is an extremely important verse in the Bible. And I know I, I can be accused of saying that about a lot of verses, but I want to I prove it to you briefly. Keep a finger here in Isaiah 55. And if you can, turn to Revelation chapter 22, the fifth to last verse of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. Right, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 17, the, the, the summary invitation of the entire Bible is quoting Isaiah 55, verse 1. So Isaiah 55 is, 
It is the, the summary invitation of all Scripture that we would come to the waters, that we don't bring our wallets with us, but we come with no money to buy and eat the bread that is good, the wine and the milk, to, to come to the Lord. And I think this is important at, at this moment just to point out that you know, when we think of the Bible, what do we think of? The Bible is not a, a, a random collection of found literature. It's not an anthology of ancient uh, Jewish documents that we just happen to put together in this book so that it's accessible. The Bible is a story. It is a story funneling us toward a moment. And Isaiah 55 verse 1 introduces us to that moment in language that the Bible itself uh, values and uses later on as well. This is that moment that God in Scripture wants to bring us to, to this invitation that we would hear this and consider it for our lives. And so four times in these verses, God says, come, come. This implies, of course, that where we are is not good, that what we're doing is not good. The invitation to come implies, of course, that we won't find what we're looking for where we are. We see this throughout the passage, Isaiah 55, verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Where are we? We're, we're in people. We're in cultures that do not know the truth of the Lord. We need to come away from them to come to Scripture to learn the truth about God. In fact, the, the, we can see more traces of where we are here in this passage. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. We live in a nation. We all live in nations that do not know the truth of God. And so everything that they're telling us, all that counts as news, all that counts as, as opinion, all that they're telling us are things that are going to kill our soul, that deaden our soul within us. And I think we, we have all experienced this, and we do experience this. Right? How much bad news can you listen to before you feel a real sense of despair? And this is where we are, right? So we need to come away from this place. And then Isaiah 55 verses 12 and 13, it ends with what is going to be, what is an invitation to people who are in exile to come out of those places. He says in verse 12, you shall go out in joy. Like where you are is not a place of joy. You're going to go out of there. And he says, and you're going to be led forth in peace. Where you are is not a place of peace. It is not a place of joy but I'm going to bring you out of there. You need to come away from there. We need to come to the Lord. We're not going to find what we're looking for where we are. We're also not going to find what we're looking for doing what we're doing. This is very, very important contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, again, repeatedly, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, or come to the Lord. And then in verse 2, he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Or what we're doing is not working. What we're spending our time and energy on is not accomplishing what we hope it will. What we're spending our money on, the, the con- all the consumption in our life, all the entertainment consumption, all the commodity consumption, all of these consumptions are not, they're not bringing satisfaction to us. In fact, in verse 7, He says, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. I don't think of my ways as wicked. I don't think of my thoughts as unrighteous, but, but they're my thoughts and they're my ways. They're not the Lord's. 
right? They're, they're what I'm doing. And the Lord is saying that they're not going to get you what you're looking for. You're not going to find what you're looking for doing what you're doing. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote through the 20th century and described the sort of the situation of the self of each one of us in this modern, this postmodern world. And he describes what he calls the buffered self, that, that through the course of uh, the development of modernity and postmodernity, the, the, the modern world, our sophisticated, technologically savvy culture, that we have tried to create a buffer, a barrier between our self, our soul, and, and the spiritual or the theological. So we try, to, we try not to think about real evil or real righteousness. We don't want to think about heaven and hell. We don't want to think about God. And we don't want to think about souls. We don't want to think about where we came from and, and why we are so extraordinarily made and what we're here for and, and where this is all going and what happens when we die. We don't want to think about these things. And so we have all invested together to create a culture that buffers ourselves from those thoughts, from the spiritual, the supernatural, the theological. Charles Taylor describes this buffered self, but he also says this buffered self is a cross-pressured self. That even though we have created this buffer between us and these big questions, there is some there is a, a very clearly felt pressure working against that buffering, getting through those barriers, right? And we have all come to understand that something important is being kept out. We can't just ignore our souls. We can't just ignore life and death issues. We can't ignore issues of morality and justice. So what are we missing out on? We're missing out on something very elemental. And I think we should just pause here and just say, because some people might say, well, are we actually missing out? I think that we are missing out is pretty, pretty obvious. He says in verse 2 here again in Isaiah 55, Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? We are awash in cultural dissatisfaction, right? I mean, how much do we need to say at this point? about all of the different kinds of addictions and the statistics that we are so familiar with regarding these things. How many different kinds of depression and mental illnesses? How many different kinds of relational breakups, of of divorce and social dislocation? All the different kinds of damages that we're doing to our culture and society and to the world and to our bodies, right? There's, There's so There's such clear evidence that we are missing out on extremely important things. Isaiah 55 verse 13 says that instead of the the thorn shall come up the cypress and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. That allusion there to thorns and briars is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. That we, we were living in a relationship with God, but through sin... We left that relationship and we were put out into the wilderness, a land of thorns and thistles. And that's where we live. We are living in a place where it is hard, no, it is impossible to be satisfied. We are missing out on some very important things. We are missing out on verse 7. We are missing out on compassion. Isaiah 55 verse 7 says, Let Let the wicked, let the unrighteous return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him. Bible nerds would be interested to know that the word compassion here is the word that they may have heard of before, hesed. Hesed, it's it's 
challenging to capture the full scope of this word in a short amount of time, but it has to do with a genuine and deep sacrificial love. What, we would, what you and I would experience as real friendship, somebody who knows us and loves us, somebody who knows our whole story. They know who we are. And we would say, and they love us anyway. But what Hesed says is, I know you, I know your story, and I just, I love you. I don't love you in spite of anything. I don't like you, I don't love you anyways. I just love you. And we don't have this. We're missing out on an experience of this kind of compassion. Did you know that every year in the United States alone, between 100 and $150 million is lost through romance scams? These are, these are scams that are perpetrated on people by, by posing as a friend, by posing as a listening ear, somebody who has uh, fake compassion on somebody else who is lonely. And so we're brought into confidences, and then there's this appeal for money, and of course it's being given. It's a scam that we are susceptible to because we are missing out on something very important, something that is for us with the Lord. We can have compassion with the Lord. We can have this love. He goes on in verse 7 and and says, uh, Return to the Lord that he may have compassion, and return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. Abundant speaks of the generosity of it, the, the largeness of it, and the freeness of it. We can be generously, freely forgiven. Now, God has compassion on us because a lot of bad things have happened to us. There's not a single one of us who doesn't have a long list of bad things that have happened to us. But the truth is that every single thing that has happened to us that is bad, we have all made worse. We have all made worse through our decisions, our actions, our inactions, our words. But the message of Scripture is this. Listen, all of it, all that we have done for all of us may be forgiven, freely, generously forgiven with our God. And not for any work either. That's not what the Christian religion is about. Not for work, for free. The Bible doesn't teach anything about anything like purgatory. Now, I think there should be a purgatory. I think I should be there. I think you should be there. I'm kidding. But really, we all feel like we should be working for forgiveness. But the Bible says there is no work that we can do or that we need to do to be forgiven, that this abundant pardon is ours for free. There's not only not going to be any purgatory in your future, but the pains of this life that you have suffered are not pains from God as judgment against your sin. Your your suffering is not to atone for your own sin. The invitation of Scripture is that there is universal, abundant pardon for sinners. And I wonder, friend, I wonder how much of what we are doing is trying to atone for our own guilt or or how much of the numbing agents in our lives, alcohol, uh, Netflix, binging, shopping, how much of these numbing agents are there because we're trying to numb ourselves to a sense of guilt and shame. But we don't need to live with that because there is abundant pardon with the Lord. We can't get it for ourselves and our culture can't give it to us. Our culture can say you're fine But the culture cannot say you're forgiven. Only God can say that. 
So with the Lord, there's compassion, there is abundant pardon, and then there's also renewal. Verses 12 and 13 give us this vision of renewal. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is at that David Bamberger Selah Farms vision of restoration and renewal. But the renewal that Scripture offers, the restoration that Scripture invites us into, is not the world's kind, right? The world says, that thing in your life isn't working, you need an upgrade. That thing in your life is not working, we can refurbish it for you. We can replace it for you. We can give you a different life. You just need to move to a different city. You just need to get a different job or a different spouse. You just need to change your body composition. You just need to lose some weight. You just need to learn some things. But what Scripture holds out for us is redemption, transformation. The prospect of the most worrisome things in our life not just going away, but actually being redeemed. And the most worrisome things in our life becoming things that actually, when we consider them, they become sources of peace. How can this be? Scripture holds out to us the hope that the the most sorrowful things in our life can actually not just go away, but become become sources of joy. I love the image of verse 1 here again in Isaiah 55 that I think captures in sort of an image form, what we're missing out on. He says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat eat bread. And then come buy wine and milk. Water, bread, wine and milk. See this vision of water that satisfies, bread that fills, and wine and milk that delights and gives us strength. And so let me just ask you before we, we turn in this passage to a different subject is, are you satisfied? Are you filled? Do you feel full in your spirit and in your soul? Are you, are, are you delighting in the life and in, and in the love and the pardon and the hope that God has given us? Because that is what is in God for all of us. And it is only there in God. Now, we, we hear about this invitation, and this isn't the only place that this invitation is extended to us in Scripture we call this, we call this the, the good news, and it's an extraordinary message of good news. Is this sort of thing possible, right? How is this sort of thing possible? It's very easy to hear, hear preaching from the Bible and feel like, well, this is just too good to be true. It may be true for some people. It may be true for people from, from intact homes, but not, from, not for me in my broken home. This may be p- for people with, a, with good and constructive backgrounds and upbringings, but not for me with my broken background and upbringing. This may be good for some people who, who have those gifts and those strengths, but not for me with my weaknesses and my frustrations. It's just too good to be true, and all of us feel like we are excluded from the goodness of it. But what if it were good and true? What if it were good and true? Well, if it's too good to be true, or if it's good and true, it all depends on who is making this offer. For example, if if you get a phone call today and, and it's some sort of a, you just want a, t- a total life makeover kind of thing, right? Right. We're going to take all your cars and we're going to upgrade them to the newest model of better versions. We're going to upgrade your home. We're going to upgrade your property. We're going to upgrade your vacation places. We're going to upgrade your pets. We're going to upgrade your, I mean, everything. You would say, well, that sounds really great. 
who is this? And if it's, you know, if it's me, if you hear me saying, hey, it's your pastor, you would just hang up. You'd be like, this is some sort of joke. He's going to use me as a sermon illustration. But if on the line they say, who is this? Well, just hold for a second uh, for Oprah. Just hold for a second for, for the YouTuber, Mr. Beast. Just hold, you, you say, oh my goodness, this is possible. It all depends on who. And the good news, this, this extraordinary um, claim that we are invited to find our soul in, in the most elemental ways, satisfied and filled and delighted, that would only be believable with this God. And that is what verses 8 to 11 describe. Who is making this offer to us? And so it says in verse 8, uh, how can we have this compassion? Verse 7, how can we have this abundant pardon? We can have it for, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Verses 8 and 9 say this is believable because of the nature of God's ways and thoughts. They are not our ways and not our thoughts. <clears throat> There's a, uh, one way to understand that the the, the unbelievable, unbelievability of the good news is actually one of its validating characteristics, right? Because if we could believe it, if we, could, if we had thought it up, we would be trying to achieve it. We would be beginning to accomplish it. We would be doing it, but we, we can't do it. Well, everything that we've thought up, right? And you and I are living in this moment where right, the greatest civilization the world has ever seen, the greatest technological uh, we're, we're surrounded by technological marvels, right? We have thought and thought and thought as a human race, and we have tried everything. And here we are sitting in the best culture, the greatest culture the world has ever known, and all of our best ideas have just made everything worse. We need hope that comes from beyond us. Somebody whose ways are not our ways, somebody whose thoughts are not our thoughts. Well, okay, if that's where our hope is going to come from, but doesn't it kind of make you a little bit worried? Not our ways, not our thoughts, and what are they going to be like? And so he says in verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This is an important qualification that Isaiah makes here in Isaiah 55, because in the ancient world, of course, the gods, right, the gods are always up to low things. Right? With all their wisdom and all their power, they're always devising tricks. They're always taking advantage of people. They're, they're, in fact, they're behaving exactly like you and I would if we had all of their power. Because, of course, all other gods are merely psychological projections. But the God, the one true God, is unlike us. And so all that he does with all of his power and all of his wisdom, what does he do with it? He's working all things together for good. Everything that he does is done in love. His ways are higher. And if we can begin to understand that we don't understand God, we can begin to understand how this good news is possible. The nature of God's ways and thoughts make this good news possible. We also see the power of the Word of God in verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. These verses describe the power of God's word. And they do so at first by way of an illustration, how water falls from the sky as rain, right? We see the clouds up there, and then, and then they break forth, and rain falls, and the water, where does it go? We, we don't see where it goes, but somehow it ends up back up in the clouds. But what he says is, first of all, before the water goes back up into the clouds, it does everything that's necessary so that you and I can eat sandwiches. And that's what he says in verse 10, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The water goes everywhere it needs to go so that we can have bread, so we can have tomatoes, so we can have lettuce, so we can have ham and cheese and mustard and mayonnaise and pickles. It goes everywhere it needs to go. And he says, that's what God's word is like. God's word goes everywhere it needs to go and does everything it needs to, know, to do so that all that God intends happens. And that's why the Lord and his word always succeeds. Think about that in contrast to our words, right? My words don't work. In fact, this is kind of a common sort of trope in comedy and in fiction how, you know, every movie, every TV show where some character is granted, you know, three wishes or the genie in the bottle thing, the stories always end, or the story always ends with uh, the last wish being, I wish I'd never had the three wishes. I wish everything could go back just to the way it was. Because our words always make it worse. We don't, we, we cannot, we cannot describe all that needs to happen for the, for, for good to happen, for good to get done. We maybe even want good to happen, but we, our words don't work for that. Our words don't go everywhere they need to go. They don't do everything that needs to get done so that good can happen. But God's word does. God's word always succeeds at everything good he has planned. God can give what we can't find, what we can't get for ourselves. God can give it, and only God can. Only God can. That's why Isaiah 55 is such an extraordinary chapter. It's not just extraordinary in the Bible, it's extraordinary in human culture and human history. Because here is articulated in summary form the invitation that every human needs to hear. Because only God can give this invitation. Now, why only God? I want you to notice something here in our passage. Verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, to the waters. And then verse 3 he says, Incline your ear and come to me. The waters is going to be something that God gives us. And then it says in verse 3, Come to me and hear that your soul may live. There's, God has, he wants to tell us something. The water is going to be a message that we need to hear. And here's what it's about. He says, hear that your soul may live. Listen to this, and, and your soul is going to come alive within you. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What does this mean? Well, what is this thing that, that God wants to tell us? He wants to tell us about some good news. He wants to tell us about someone. He says, here's the good news. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you through this, this David person. Now, of course, David is a historical person, king of Israel, but, but he lived and died hundreds of years before Isaiah is writing this. 
But here's what this means. There's David, and then there's the son of David. Throughout the Old Testament, it became clearer and clearer that all of the promises of God, all that, all that uh, would make our souls come alive, all that would satisfy us and fill us and, and give us joy and peace and hope, all of that was going to depend upon one person, one man. And that, that one man, who is called the Messiah in some places, was also called the son of David. And in fact, we're here in Isaiah 55, just a chapter before in Isaiah 53, we hear the most, uh, one of the most astonishing and clear descriptions of this son of David who's going to come and who's going to bear our trespasses and transgressions and our sins upon himself and give us righteousness and life and hope and peace and joy as a result. Who's going to bring us into the covenant promises, the steadfast, sure love of God. This, this son of David is going to appear and he's going to do what is necessary so that he receives this covenant love, and then he can offer it to us. I want to draw your attention one last time back to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 verse 17 we read earlier that quotes Isaiah 55 verse 1. Isaiah, uh, Revelation twenty two seventeen says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. In the very previous verse, verse 16, we read this. I, Jesus, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And then verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come to Jesus. And let the one who hears say, come to Jesus. And let the one who is thirsty come to this son of David, the descendant of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in fact, when we listen to Jesus in his ministry, in his life and ministry, he uses the language of Isaiah 55 verse 1 to invite people to himself. He says in John 4 to the woman at the well, he says uh, that the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And a few chapters later in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stands up on the last day of a feast he was attending. The great day Jesus stood up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the son of David who is inviting all people to come to him and to experience the steadfast, sure love that only God can give us that God wants to give us. Friends, what God is offering to all of us in the Bible, compassion, love, abundant pardon, the hope of renewal, what God offers in the Bible, He offers to us in Jesus. That is why it is only God who can give us this, because He gives it to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God. So what should we do with this this morning? What what does this invitation ask us to do? Look again at verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, so note that, he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buy and eat, buy without money. What does this mean? 
Well, without money, of course, means it's free. It's 100% free. The invitation of Scripture, the invitation of the good news of the Bible that God offers us in Jesus, it is 100% free. In fact, it's the way of God is like a reverse of a bouncer at a club or an exclusive restaurant here on earth. The bouncers at the clubs or the restaurants, they want to say, hey, who are you that you deserve to come in here? What have you done that I should let you into this place? Are you going to make this place better? Do you have enough money to to add value? Do you look good enough? Are you going to be able to purchase a lot of the the drinks and and the food? Are you going to make a contribution to this club and restaurant? But with God, it's the opposite. If there's a bouncer right in, in heaven or a bouncer at the gates of the gospel, they're saying, hey, are you hungry? Are you starving? Fantastic. Get on in here. Are you are you poor and are you broke? Great. You're welcome. So the invitation of scripture is is all inclusive, right? Everyone is welcome. And it's also passive, right? Everything is done for you without you. Right? You have no money that works in this place. And he says without money, he says buy. Buy. Imagine you get another phone call. Getting a lot of phone calls in this sermon, I guess. Uh, imagine you get a phone call inviting you to the most extraordinary party the world has ever seen. In fact, it's personalized for you. It's going to have all of your favorite people are invited there and all of the people that you would like to meet. In fact, everybody on the guest list is going to be somebody that when you get a chance to meet them, if you get a chance to meet them, you're going to be delighted to know them. It is going to be an amazing party. It's going to be catered by all of your favorite restaurants. And any restaurant that's catered there that you're not already familiar with, you're going to love what's there. It's going to have comedians and um, magicians and bands and just this incredible lineup of, of guests and entertainment. It's going to be the most extraordinary party the world has ever seen. And, you, and don't, don't bring anything. Don't bring a casserole. Don't bring a side dish. Don't bring anything. You don't have to do anything. Just show up. You don't even have to bring a ticket. Just come. And when you hear about that invitation, you're going to hang the phone up and you're going to say, oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing that's happened to me maybe in my entire life. I mean, I can't wait to go to this party. And then the second thing you're going to think is, what, what should I wear? Who's going to watch my kids? I'm going to need to get off work a little bit early today. Now, from God's perspective, the invitation of, of Scripture is absolutely 100% free. And from our perspective, though, and certainly I'm not suggesting that, that we need to get dressed up for God because that is an impossibility and a, and a ridiculous thing here that completely undermines the freeness of the gospel. But from our perspective, what Scripture is inviting us into, if we're honest, is a little bit intimidating, which I think is what Isaiah 55 is getting at. He's saying, come you, without money. It's 100% free, but he's saying, buy. If he's saying buy, it means that there's a cost. And here's the cost. We see it in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. That's the cost. The cost is forsaking our ways and our thoughts. Now, I love my ways. I've been using my ways and I've been thinking my thoughts for decades. I'm deeply invested in all of these things that are not satisfying me, but I'm invested in them. But I've got to forsake those things. Right? There's, a cl- there's a cost. The, the good news of the Bible, the gospel, is inclusive. All are welcome. It's also exclusive. You're welcome to Jesus. Verse 2, 
In the second half of verse 2, he says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Eat what is good. Right? There, there's some exclusivity here. Why are you eating that? That is not what you were invited here to be enjoying. It's, it's passive, we said, where everything is done for you without you. But it's also an invitation to activity. Again, in verse 2, he says, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. You may say, well, this sounds like a contrast. Come without money and buy. I think what he's doing here is he's, he's just playing off of simple truths, which is to say that for this to work, if this is this image of this being a meal that we are invited to, water and bread and wine and milk, this, for this meal to work, you have to admit your hunger. You have to admit your hunger. Are, are you hungry? No, no thanks. I'm not hungry. Well, then you're... You don't have to bring anything to the meal, but you, you have to say you're hungry. You have to come to eat. And, and for this invitation to work, you have to eat it. You have to eat it and enjoy it. Of course, this is obvious, but the Bible says it because so often you and I pretend that we're doing religious stuff as a favor to God. God's saying, come to me and I'll, make, I'll satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And we turn that into, well, I'll try to make some time for you, God, but you know, I really need that promotion at work. I'll try to make some time. God, I hope you see what I'm doing here. I'm here on Sunday morning. I could be anywhere. I hope you like this. Like We're doing it for Him, but He's the cook here. And friends, listen, like, like any cook, he only gets glory. It's, it's only working if we're digging in and delighting. Right? The best praise and honor and glory that God gets from this invitation is us being quiet and chewing and making mmm noises. So without money, buy this, eat this, enjoy this. And I think that the application of this to, to all of us is really the same. Christian or those of us exploring Christianity or, or, or not quite yet committed to this, not quite receiving this invitation. For all of us, friends, listen, stop pretending that the world works. Stop pretending that, that you're doing it. Right? We are all hungry. We are all hungry for the steadfast, sure love of God. We are all hungry for abundant, generous, free forgiveness. We are all hungry for the hope of renewal. And Christian friends, eat what is good. Eat what is good. You know what is good. Eat what is good. Pig slop and table scraps are not for us. If you're thirsty, drink the water of life. If you're hungry, come to the bread of life. Drink the wine. Drink the milk. Be delighted. Be strengthened. In the words of C.S. Lewis, friends, further up and further in. Further up and further in. Maybe you have experienced the water. You've met Jesus. Maybe you've experienced the bread. You're digging into Scripture and you're, you're enjoying it. Maybe sometimes these things delight you, the, the wine, and sometimes they give you strength. Well, explore all of these things. Go further up and further and eat what is good. I mean, the good news of Isaiah 55 is that we don't have to be thirsty. We don't have to be hungry. We don't have to be lost, lonely, or sad. 
anymore. Right? That is what the Bible is about, the end of those things. So come and enjoy what is good and be delighted. Come meet Jesus. And come and those of you who know Jesus, come know him better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this invitation. Lord, give us good ears to hear and good hearts to receive. To come to drink of the water of life. To pull up a chair and eat of the bread of life. To enjoy the wine of the celebration of this joy. And to, to enjoy the milk, the strength-giving life that you offer us. Let this word dwell in us richly, Lord, and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.